I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. We talk about many ways of being in the business of real estate on our show, residential ownership, operating a warehouse, developing an office building. I'm breaking no news to you in our audience. But we're here to talk about a different kind of real estate entity altogether and the intersection between commercial real estate and the global capital markets. On this episode, we'll consider the business of REITs, real estate investment trusts, and the role of these publicly traded products in the economy at large. One of the great things about REITs, even if you're not an active REIT investor, it's a great way to see through to what's going on in the commercial real estate market in sort of a real-time manner. That's John Worth, Executive Vice President of Research and Investor Outreach for NAREIT, the leading trade association for REITs in the U.S. Based in Washington, D.C., John will help us better understand the sector, along with the challenges and opportunities it presents for investors. The recovery from COVID is a bit volatile, but it's pretty much happening now and will play out over the next six to 12 months. But underneath that, we've just had an ordinary recession. And that's our old friend of the show, Richard Barkham, CBRE's global chief economist and head of America's research. Joining us from Massachusetts, Richard's here to offer broader economic context to our discussion, and perhaps some fodder for debate. Our conversation will span the globe to cover issues that are making business headlines. We'll look at the state and future of the recession and the recovery, and consider whether it may be something of a two-stage recovery at that. And we'll get down to the nitty-gritty of REITs, what they are, how they are traded, why they offer a hedge and an indicator of future values, and more. Coming up, the economy and everything you wanted to know about REITs but were afraid to ask. That's right now on The Weekly Take. Welcome to The Weekly Take. And this week, we're going to talk about REITs and the economy and megatrends that will affect it all. We can take the whole show on the economy, but this is a REIT show, so the economy will just be a piece of the action. But what I've been seeing is that notwithstanding the Delta variant, uh, we're still chugging along. Uh, Interest rates haven't spiked. Stock market's still good. What's your point of view, Richard? I think it's exactly that, Spence. The the U.S. economy is still um, moving along at a fair old clip, probably around 4 to 5% GDP growth in the third quarter, with the forces acting on the economy, obviously the reopening um, and sectors. It might have taken a little bit of a hit during the Delta surge, but not as much as everybody uh, thought. Um, We've got very supportive government policy. We've got low interest rates. We've got fiscal expansion. Um, We've got the reopening of the global economy. So I think everything is moving along quite quickly. That said, it's quite clear that we're running into some issues in the global economy, not so much the American economy, that will throw up some volatility. The supply side, the supply chain shortages, the difficulty in getting goods to market, the difficulty of getting people into jobs is proving much bigger than we first thought. And slightly more worryingly, big picture uh, in the background, I see a slowdown in China taking place. And I will just say as a final comment, Spence, it looks like real estate is in full recovery, uh, with the only thing remaining is just some question marks about the office sector. On the full recovery thing, Richard, you and I have debated a lot of things over the years, but one of the things that you have been very firm on is that the cycle is the most important thing. And I think it's fair to say that since real estate's in full recovery 
after the apocalypse that was 2020, um, the cycle may not have reset. What do you think? There are two things going on, and we've got to be very clear that you, you distinguish them. One is the recovery from COVID, which is a shock. So the recovery from COVID is it's a bit uh, volatile, but it's pretty much happening now and will play out over the next six to 12 months. But underneath that, we've just had an ordinary recession, and it's been a relatively mild recession. And you can see that in the number of workers that are not temporarily uh, laid off uh, statistics. So I think we did have a recession, um, and we are at the start of a new cycle uh, over the next seven or eight years. And that, I think, will be dominated by some new trends emerging, one of which is decarbonisation, one of which is just productivity growth in the United States. And I think also we've got the shift of millennials out of cities into suburban areas, which is going to kick off a a housing market, a single-family home market revival, which we didn't see in the last cycle. It was completely absent in the last cycle. So I do believe that we had a a mild recession and that we're kicking off a new uh, eight-year cycle. Well, Richard, let me uh, just say that uh, I hope you're right. Uh, But since you and I are both on our global economics calls every month, I do know that our forecast for three years out is for the economy to revert back to its slow growth rate uh, pre-COVID around 1.8%. How do you reconcile those two comments that the cycle is going to go another seven, eight years, but we're going to have a big slowdown in three years? Well, I think one of the things that people are not keeping an eye on um, is just that over the next five years, the labor force in the United States is actually going to shrink. So that's going to constrain growth. And to unleash the power of the, uh, the, of the cycle in, in the United States, we need to think about how we increase the labour supply. But that is for then, not for now. I think the low growth rates that we see in three years are perfectly consistent with a new cycle, but they're a new cycle constrained by labour supply. Okay, so let's come back to the inflation question for a moment, because I want to bring in our good friend John Worth. I promised him a redeck episode, and doggone it, we're going to have one. So, John, since you live and breathe REITs, just very basically for the average listener, just as fine, what is a REIT? Happy to. So REITs, or real estate investment trusts, are operating companies that, very simply put, own and operate uh, commercial real estate. They can also own and manage uh, commercial real estate-based assets. There's really uh, three types of REITs you might be familiar with. Listed equity REITs, these uh, make up the the vast majority of the market capitalization. They own and operate uh, commercial real estate structures, uh, office buildings, apartments, data centers, and so on. Mortgage REITs own and manage uh, commercial real estate and residential real estate-based assets, mostly mortgage-backed securities, typically backed by Fannie and Freddie. And then what we call public non-listed REITs, which are REITs that are public, They file with the SEC, they file 10Ks and 10Qs, but they're not listed on a stock exchange. So they're a somewhat unique creature. Last year at the depths of the cycle, it was a pretty dark day in the REIT world, but it's staged quite a recovery. Tell us how things have changed in the last year. Yeah, I think that this is where where we can have a good discussion about commercial real estate generally, because I do think one of the great things about REITs, even if you're not an active REIT investor, it's a great way to see through to what's going on in the commercial real estate market in sort of a real-time manner. And so, of course, what we saw was a real plummet in REIT share prices back in, in March and April of last year, and then really a two-stage recovery since then, with really sent from April 
through November being a kind of a digital-led recovery where we saw logistics, infrastructure, data centers, cell towers leading the share price recovery. And then starting in November of, of 2020, really, it was almost November 8th to the day when we had some great vaccine news, we've seen this reopening play, which has, has played out where we've seen retail come back tremendously, uh, hotels come back. And then on a separate track, we've seen the tremendous results in multifamily, uh, tracking sort of the growth, everything that's going on in, in housing markets generally. So over that time, we've seen a good recovery over the entire course of COVID, which is the way I like to look at it, rather than year to date 2021, uh, you lose a lot of the color of, of what happened in 2020. Over the whole course, you know, we've seen equity REITs up about 12% over that entire period, despite being up 27% this year. Let me pause there. I want to clarify what that 12 and 27 is. That's 12% above where they were pre-COVID? 12% above where they were at the pre-COVID peak. Yeah. And it actually, I'm actually looking at that as of like February 21, uh, 2020, which was kind of the, that pre-COVID peak. They've seen a full recovery plus 12%. And, and we're going to get into sectors because I think right now uh, you really can't talk about commercial real estate as a whole. You have to go down into the sectors because each sector is telling us a different story and are, are experiencing very different trends. On Richard's point about, or this debate about, are we in a new cycle or is this a continuation of a cycle after a shock? The economy was not overheating by any stretch of the imagination coming into COVID. And in most sectors, we weren't seeing commercial real estate supply at particularly high levels. I view what we've gone through as much more of a shock than necessarily a resetting. But we were going through a period where we were seeing very modest increases in supply, and I'd say very restrained supply. And I don't really see anything changing that going forward. I think we're going to continue to see, in some ways, sort of a new paradigm around supply of more controlled supply coming into the market. Yeah, if I may, if I may just jump in, Spence. Uh, and one of the reasons I was reasonably optimistic that once policy kicked in and once we got on top of the virus, which I thought we would, we'd come out of this uh, COVID shock with a bang, was that level of corporate balance sheet strength was true across the whole of American industry. Corporates in generally were very well prepared with uh, ample liquidity as we went into the COVID crisis, with one exception, of course, which was the retail sector, where you had relatively high levels of leverage, and we saw quite a lot of retail restructuring um, over the course of the crisis. So, John, let's turn back to REITs. Let me ask you two basic questions, first of all. So notwithstanding the fact that the REIT industry has blossomed over the last 25 years, 20, 25 years, it's uh, still pretty small. Number two, what do you say to people who aren't dedicated REIT investors? Why should they buy REITs? To answer the question, I'm going to go backwards. So the why REITs, I think, is, is quite simple because it's the same answer as why have real estate in a portfolio. Real estate is a tremendous diversifier in a portfolio. Uh, it provides generally pretty stable stable income returns, uh, opportunities for, for capital appreciation, very inexpensive inflation protection. That is, you get inflation protection typically, but you also do well in non-inflationary periods. So the why REITs is the same as the why real estate generally. And yeah, the size of the market, you know, REITs own today somewhere between 10 and 20% of commercial real estate in the United States 
uh, depending on how you measure it. And that really goes back to the structure of real estate. Real estate has historically had a lot of private ownership. It does make real estate very unique among the stock market sectors in the sense that REITs can make up about 3% of the S&P 500. There are 11 GICs sectors. Uh, real estate was the, is the 11th recently added. When you look across the other 10 sectors, you really don't see this situation where the vast bulk of the economic activity in that sector is taking place outside of the listed stock exchange traded space. I actually view that as a huge opportunity for investors, right? Because we've seen in property sector after property sector where REITs are able to go to the private market, bring properties in, uh, in some cases, professionalize their operations. I'm thinking particularly self-storage has been a great example of a place where a, a mom-and-pop business has been institutionalized over time, in large part by REITs, and their investors have enjoyed the benefits of that. It's a unique space because we have so much private ownership, and that, in some ways, depresses the stock market share of it. And that's why when we talk to individual investors, target date funds, DC plans, one of the things that's very important is that for you to get a meaningful exposure to commercial real estate that matches with its share of the investable universe generally, you have to own REITs above their uh, market cap share. John, uh, I think opened the door to the issue I skipped earlier, which is inflation, about real estate being a good inflationary hedge, which is its historic reputation, which brings up where's inflation going, Richard? And you know, there's two schools of thought of this. There's our school, which is not going too bad. It's just a short-term thing. And then there's a school that we're about to be in for a period of three to five years of well-advanced inflation. Well, Richard, where are you? Well, I'd probably be somewhere in the middle. Definitely see uh, high levels of inflation, largely related, I have to say, to reopening the economy and labor shortages and goods shortages. They're all disruption-related issues. And there is a little bit of a concern now that the price rises are sort of broadening. They're not just focused in transport and a few kind of sectors that they were in the early phase of the reopening. Transitory is a marvellously ill-defined word. Um, it could be six months or it could be two years. I definitely think that we're in for more inflation than we expected over the next 12 months or so. Um, but I don't see it turning into a three to five year um, inflation cycle. And there are many reasons for that. One is that the impact of people staying at home and not coming back into the labour force, that will ease, that will go away. The Asian economies will open up more. Chips will arrive. It'll all take place next year. So a lot of those disruptions that we saw over this year, they will ease. But the thing that worries me about the global economy is just the slowdown in China. The Chinese have put the brakes on their economy and... I think that's going to take some of the wind out of the sails of the global economy in 2022, which will help for controlling inflation. And of course, China is one of the big consumers of raw materials and commodities. So most of the time you worry about uh, a China slowdown and the impact on the, wor the world economy. I'm thinking that it might actually be helpful in the current uh, situation to take some of the inflation out of the system. Not that I thought that it was going to turn into a wage price spiral. Um, you know, we just don't have the same conditions with union power and um, uh, lack of globalization that we had in the 1970s. 
but I think the slowdown in China will be one of the reasons why inflation won't be as high as people expect next year. I was reading in a uh, paper today, the stagflation risk of the 70s, unlikely. And uh, also, can you just put a few numbers on where you think the 10-year Treasury is going to be at the end of this year and the end of next? I think the 10-year Treasury likely to be around where it is now at the end of this year, 1.7, 1.8. As underlying growth picks up, the level of unemployment in the US economy continues to fall. Um, So I've talked about volatility in the global economy. I've talked about hitches and bumps along the way, but we're basically optimistic on economic growth in 2022. As the level of real unemployment comes down, then I think that's going to push the 10-year Treasury up. Uh, maybe to 24 2.5% at the back end of next year. Um, and I do think that, and it's a fine judgment, that the, the, the Fed is going to probably move on short-term interest rates more quickly than people expect. But that's a sign of success and recovery in the U.S. economy. John, let's turn to the global thing that Richard brought up about how the impact of China uh, what that's having on our economy. But there are also REITs all over the world. There's REITs in Mexico, there's REITs in Canada, there's REITs in lots of other countries. Um, if I'm an American investor and I want to buy some of that, what do you say to them? There's a REIT regime in, in about 40 countries around the world. From the humble beginnings of, of the REIT system in 1960, it's grown obviously not just in the US, but lots of other countries have adopted uh, the approach. And there's also even countries that don't have a REIT regime uh, we have, you know, listed real estate companies ar- around the world. And I do think the U.S. Uh, has really been the place to be a REIT investor over the last uh, several years, just um, in, in part because the U.S. Uh, has been faster in terms of embracing some of the newer property sectors. But I think the, the global investment horizon, when you look out over a, a meaningful time period, we're going to see, obviously, uh, more growth in Asia and faster growth in Asia. Uh, that is something that a lot of investors are interested in. And there's ample exposure through REITs. Uh, and the REIT regimes around the world, they vary, uh, I would say, mostly in the details What they have in common is typically you're getting one level of taxation at the shareholder level. Uh, So it it sort of mirrors uh, private ownership of real estate in those countries. So the global outlook, I think, uh, is reasonably strong, particularly in Asia. You know, Europe has been a slower growing area in terms of uh, both the growth of listed real estate generally, as well as the the REIT performance. Uh, But as I said, we see a lot of investors very interested in using REITs to fill out the global portion of their real estate exposure. If perhaps they have a U.S. strategy that they do through direct real estate, they use REITs to be the completion portfolio globally. Now we're seeing investors really doing the same strategy, but by sector as well, using REITs to complement where their private exposure isn't getting the access that they need. Two more technical questions, and then we'll get into the sectors. The technical question number one is, Um, Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about the dividend policy or the dividend law, better stated, of how much dividends REITs are required to pay? And then the second question I I think is really interesting, which is what qualifies as a REIT? I remember, I don't want to date myself, but uh, I was around when we were forming the first cell tower REITs. And they said, is that really real estate? And somebody said, yeah, well, I guess it is really real estate. So number one, the dividend policy. And number two, 
what qualifies as a REIT or what can qualify as a REIT. Right. So, yeah, the dividend policy, which really does go sort of to the core of, of what it means to be a REIT, is that in the U.S. and, and other countries, countries are, are very similar. Uh, REITs are required to pay out at least 90% of their taxable income. Uh, most REITs pay out 100% of their taxable income and, and often more because there's obviously a, a spread between their gap income and their, their taxable income because they have different, different rules of depreciation and, and what counts for each uh, definition of income. What that provides is, you know, what most people know about REITs is that they pay a strong dividend. So over the last couple of years, REITs have paid a dividend that's more than twice uh, the average of, say, the S&P 500. And and today, the yields are around 2.85%. So they've been known as income producers because of this dividend policy. What that dividend policy uh, really provides from a public policy perspective that really allows the taxation of a dollar of income that flows through a REIT and a dollar of income that flows through a partnership, so really the two dominant ways of owning real estate, to be aligned. And that was the original purpose of REITs, was to create a structure where a broad base of, of households could gain exposure to commercial real estate uh, in a way that they probably couldn't through being a, a limited partner in a partnership-owned uh piece of real estate or directly owning the real estate themselves. And so that dividend policy allows for that alignment of tax treatment. You know, in terms of what qualifies as a REIT, really it comes down to is the income derived from a real estate activity. So you use the the example of cell phone towers. I think it's a great example because some people look at a cell phone tower and they go, how could that be real estate? But if you really break it down, it's a structure on land and the income is derived from rent. It's actually quite straightforward. Uh, you look at data centers. It's a structure on land, and you're renting out space in it. In this case, you're not renting out an apartment or an office space. You're renting space for a server, but it is no, nevertheless uh, very clearly real estate. And so we've seen over time, I wouldn't say that the definition of real estate has expanded. I think what has happened is that people have been using all sorts of structures on land for centuries and centuries, uh, but what we've seen is that uh, more and more of those different types of structures have become institutionalized as property sectors and, and really, in a way, professionalized. And REITs, I think, to their benefit, have really been on the forefront of that. Well, let's now turn to sectors. Richard, let's go to uh, what John just said about the institutionalization of some of these opry or operational real estate asset classes, data centers, life sciences. Uh, they may be the hottest sectors in real estate today. Why, Richard? The amount of capital that wants to deploy in real estate is huge and growing. All of the other sectors are, are priced to perfection. So I think capital is always looking for uh, new opportunities within real estate. And of course, the digital economy is expanding and it's creating changes in usage patterns. And um, real estate investors are really trying to leverage that by looking into these new avenues. Now, they're still relatively small. Let's remember that. It's still a relatively small part of the real estate uh, investment landscape. But I have to say, we're slightly running to keep up with all of the new sectors that are opening up in real estate. Uh, we need to research them. We need to find details and data on them. And, um, you know, this is the way the new cycle is going to go um, with more new sectors created by the growth of the digital economy. 
I agree with you, Richard. Um, the two scarcest things in the world, I often say, are large pockets of talent and large pockets of high-yielding investments. And REITs and real estate really do uh, provide opportunities for both because they both go hand in hand. John, let's turn back to you now because there's a terrific paper that came out recently uh, published in the Journal of Portfolio Management. And if you guys could see my screen, I have a copy of it sitting right next to me here. Um, But what the paper really tried to show was the difference in the return profile of REITs versus other ownership structures, whether it be private equity or otherwise. Tell us a little bit about the paper and what it concluded regarding the REIT structure versus others. Yeah, the paper was authored by three great academics, one of whom happens to have had a long career as a practitioner, Tom Arnold, who uh, until about a year ago was the global head of real estate for Adia, so one of the one of the world's largest real estate investors, along with uh, David Ling and Andy Naranjo, who are, are well-known, well-respected uh, real estate academics and have done a lot of research uh, in REITs and other areas of commercial real estate. And what they really set out to do in this paper was to do head-to-head examinations, what they call horse races, between uh, closed-end private equity real estate funds and REITs. So really asking the question, on the day you agreed to invest in a private equity real estate fund, uh, or really when the capital call occurred, what if instead you had invested in a diversified portfolio of REITs? How would your performance have matched up? And they're able to do this with the data set from Cambridge Associates and look at over 375 U.S. funds over a 14-year period, basically. And, and what they find is with no adjustments, uh, you would have won using REITs in 53% of the trials. And overall, you would have outperformed by about 165 basis points per year by going with the REIT strategy. They then make actually some adjustments for the cost of waiting for your capital to be called uh, illiquidity and leverage differences. And, and after they make those adjustments, and the paper's very transparent about what they are, and, and readers can kind of uh, choose their own adventure in terms of how much they want to make an adjustment for those, uh, they find that REITs actually win 68% of the trials and outperform by almost six percentage points per year. It's really a pretty dramatic outperformance. We think it's an important piece of research, especially for institutional investors to understand that there have historically been return differences and that they need to take those into account as they build their portfolio. Just to be totally clear, Nehri is not saying there's REITs are the only way to hold commercial real estate. Uh, really, what we view is that public and private real estate can be complementary in a portfolio, and they both need to be in a portfolio for different uses. I'm going to ask a broader question if I can. You hear some of the criticisms of the structure. And the criticisms of the structure include things like, number one, very hard to develop new product under a REIT umbrella. That's criticism number one. Criticism number two you hear is that because these REITs are fully integrated, meaning they do everything from ownership to leasing to management to property management, Is that really the most efficient use of their time and money uh, to do all of these functions rather than outsourcing? So how do you respond to critics that say, you know what, it's great to have publicly traded real estate, but maybe REITs aren't the optimal publicly traded structure response? 
Well, REITs actually have limits uh, on on their ability to be developers. It's very difficult for them to develop to sell. But we do see a meaningful amount of development uh, for their own portfolio. And REITs are a really material purchaser of newly developed properties. So they're not the optimal vehicle uh, to be a developer. In fact, that's sort of by design. In terms of, of REITs internal versus external management, this, this is a debate that uh, sort of comes and goes over time. And, and the U.S. is fairly unique. Uh, you know, it, the U.S. and Europe, in the U.S. today, about 97% of the market cap of equity REITs uh, is internally managed. But if you go to Asia, virtually all the REITs are externally managed. That top-level decision of whether you're going to have an internal or external management, to me, that is something that is really driven by investor preferences. And in the U.S., uh, there's a very strong investor preference for that internal management. But of course, as you make the point, that doesn't mean that the REIT has to internalize every function. Ultimately, what you need to see is what is the individual REIT's operational performance, where can they have uh, world-class operations? Where can, where can they outsource to get world-class operations? And for the investor, it's ultimately, what is my uh, long-term return net of uh, both the uh, GNA and then the fees I need to hold the, the real estate in this particular form? That's ultimately the determination of what the best model is as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, I, but I, I do take your point. Not everybody has to do everything. And Spence, if I could weigh in on this, uh, and John would probably agree, I, st I started watching uh, REITs as a, an adjunct to the kind of fundamental real estate research that I would do back in the 1980s. And back in the 1980s, REITs were, you know, they were pretty freebooting. They were merchant developers, they'd buy anything, they were these kind of very eclectic mixture of assets. But really coming out of the 1990s recession and over the last 20 or 30 years, you've seen a degree of specialization in REITs and professionalization of management coming out of that specialization. So I think many of the innovations that we've seen in real estate, particularly in the shopping center industry, uh, but not limited to that, have actually come out of the specialization and professionalization that's taken place in the REIT sector. So I, I think... Some of those criticisms of the REIT sector are kind of misplaced. Yeah, Richard, I, th I think that's exactly right. And, you know, when you look at this role of specialization, it's, it's really uh, quite incredible. Today, only 3% of the REIT market cap is in diversified REITs. The rest of it are in pure play of one variety or another REITs. And that's really been driven by investor demands, right? The REIT specialist investors uh, who, who serve a lot of institutional investors uh, have basically said, we want you to be pure play so you become best in class and we understand exactly what it is you're investing in and doing. That's helped, I think, grow efficiencies. And, and then I think particularly in the, the, the digital uh, real estate sectors, and in that I'm including logistics, data centers, cell towers, that operating platform, that idea of having a permanent operating platform, uh, I think becomes very, very important because there you really, scale really starts to matter, as well as having some network effects come into play. One of the downsides of REITs, I think, is just 
how much they depend on the corporate bond market, the fixed interest market, bond rates. So they're very, very sensitive to interest rates, not just the treasury market, but also in the corporate bond market. So if you see corporate bond yields going up on fears of inflation, some of that noise can spill over into the REIT market. It's short term, but it's sometimes amplified um, that REITs are a little bit subject to bond market events, which are unrelated to real estate. That's just something you've got to watch out for if you're a REIT investor. I think that's right. And and we, this is something we look at a lot. And what we've actually seen is that short-term correlation with, say, the 10-year treasury, uh, it actually flips back and forth uh, from being positive to negative. And, and it appears as though it really depends on what kind of monetary policy environment we're in. And this goes back to something you said earlier, Richard. When you look out over a year, a rising 10-year treasury is highly correlated with both positive REIT returns uh, and, and REITs beat the S&P 500 about 50% of the time. It's about a coin flip with the broader stock market over a year when you have rising treasuries. Because over that period, right, what treasuries rising is telling you is that we've got a strengthening economy. And that's just good for fundamentals. I'm now going to ask a wrap-up question to each of you. And John, let's start with you. So REITs just went through this uh, tremendous shock, but a tremendous comeback. Five years from now, looking back, what are the big changes, positive or negative, in the REIT industry? Well, I, th- I think they're going to mirror the changes in the broader commercial real estate space. And I think the, the two big dynamics that are just impossible to, to overlook are, one, just the increased digitization of the economy. Our economy is getting increasingly virtual, increasingly digitized, and real estate you know, is built to house that economy in one form or another. And we have to assume that real estate is going to continue to evolve to meet the needs of this more digital, in the U.S., I think more increasingly uh, intellectual work, uh, creative work-driven economy. Uh, the, the other point and is the need to come to terms with the impact of all human behavior, but in our space, this is structures on climate and the role of climate, both in driving risks in the near term and the long term, and the role of changing policy and how owners of real estate and structures are going to have to react to that changing policy. And I think it's just something that has become more important over the last five years and moving from a nice to have to a need to have. uh, And over the next five years is going to move from need to have to absolutely critical to have a handle around how the climate impacts your properties and how your properties impact uh, our carbon footprint. Well, I agree with you on that one, uh, 120%, because every dinner I have with large investors, uh, and I have a lot of those dinners, they say they want to tackle the environmental issue. So Richard, same question to you. Uh, Five years from now, looking back, uh, what do we see big picture from an economic perspective, not just for the economy, but how it impacts real estate? Five years ahead, I think first thing we'll notice in that first period of the five years is just probably continued recovery in the office sector um, in a way that people still not quite comfortable with or or anticipating now. Um, I think we might also see some outperformance of physical retail. One of the things I think the COVID um, crisis has done is just prompted, as I said earlier, the kind of millennial cohort to start to move to the suburbs and own uh, property there. And I think 
All of those retail assets that exist in the suburbs are going to benefit from that. I see that happening. I see, uh, as John pointed out, further digitization of the economy, um, feeding through into demand for data centers, into demand for industrial and logistics, and who knows, other non-standard real estate. And I believe in the decarbonization story. I think that's going to play out over 10 years. I think we'll get some missteps along the way. I mean, people don't quite know how to deal with this. Even government don't know quite how to deal with it. So I think the risks of capital misallocation here are quite high. But this is the early stages. We need to decarbonize the economy. So I think we'll probably see some mistakes in policy uh, around decarbonisation emerging. There's no getting around it. We've got to experiment in order to move forward in this area. So people are just beginning to figure out in five years' time what actually is going to work long term. So that's what I see, I think, over five years. But in the framework of reasonably good growth in the US economy uh, and globally. Well, on behalf of The Weekly Take, I want to thank John Worth, the Executive Vice President, Research and Investor Outreach at NAREIT. John, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was a great conversation. And Richard Barkham, the Global Chief Economist, Head of America's Research, and a good friend of mine. Richard, thank you. Pleasure. For more detail on REITs and more economic insights, check out our Weekly Take homepage at cbre.com slash take. We'll be back next week, after Halloween that is, with a packed schedule of informative treats that we've got in the works, including a look ahead to other holidays with an episode on retail, an enlightening episode on healthy buildings, and more. If you enjoyed this program, of course, please share a link to the show and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on the platform of your choice. For now, I'm Spencer Lee. Be smart. Be safe, be well.